Morning, everyone. It is Thursday, the 23rd of June. Bit of a quieter one overnight. Henry, what happened? Uh, thanks, Ben. Well, it was a little bit of a quieter night. All eyes on federal teacher Jerome Powell, who was getting sautéed at the Senate's committee. They have the semi-annual Humphrey Hawkins testimony, and he has two days to be grilled or sautéed by the committee. And they did criticise him, I guess, for being somewhat late to the party on the whole inflation aspect of the US economy. As a result of all this, he was flapping his lips. Somebody called it chin music, which I thought was very appropriate on telly this morning. But the Dow in all of this was relatively volatile, but still quiet trade, not great volumes again. The Dow fell 47 points at the end, down 0.15%. NASDAQ down a similar amount, 16 points. And the S&P down a similar amount, but we did see some falls in base metals and oil, which I guess is good news on the inflationary front. We saw the oil price come back 2.5%. That Brent crude now down to $111. The iron ore price still under pressure as well. Big mover was nickel, 5.9% down, which when you look at the chart, it's just bringing it back to where it was before the big short squeeze and the kind of debacle we saw on the LME. Yes, I'm sure you agree with that. And we did see the rest of the base metals ease as well, BHP and Rio easier. And that is playing out in our market this morning as well. Commodity prices feeding into that sector. So a little bit of a wishy-washy night in the US. And again, we got more testimony from Powell coming in the next day as well. He has two days of grilling, but uh, everyone's jumping on the recessionary bandwagon. And he even mentioned a 1% potentially in terms of rate rises, although it was a little bit under his breath, I think. So it very much the focus still is inflation and rate rises for July, August and September. Worth mentioning, we do have the dogs in the office today. (laughs) If they're uh, chatting in the background, apologies. Very good. Thank you, Henry. Tom, what's happening today? Thanks, Ben. Well, ASX 200 is treading water really up eight points most sectors are positive property and tech stocks outperforming although energy and miners are the big weights on the market bhp and rio both down more than three percent as commodity prices fall overnight which is what henry was talking about pilbara minerals though pls up two percent on a very strong lithium auction and remelius resources rms down six percent they cut production guidance we did have an update from agl its review of its strategic direction will be due in September. And we had some flash services and manufacturing PMI data. Both remain in expansion territory above 50, although flash services is at a five-month low. So services coming back a bit. And that's about it. Very nice. Thank you, Tom. Layton, what have you got for us from the brokers today? Thank you, Ben. Just following on with that commodity and energy story, a couple of coal miners have received some price target downgrades following that announcement of the increase in royalty in Queensland. City reduced BHP Group's coal division profit estimate by 7.1% and the target price was unchanged though, implying a 22% upside and they've retained their buy recommendation there. And Morgan's has lowered its target price for Coronado Global Resources, that's CRN, by 15.8% to $2.50, which still implies a 52% upside. The broker again has retained its ad recommendation and Morgan Stanley has lowered its price targets for for stocks in the resources sector in general after cutting 2022 forecasts for most of the key commodities. And that includes BHP Group, Fortescue Metals and Rio Tinto. Their target prices have all been lowered. I won't go into the details, but it's in the range of around 7 to 13% for each of those. The interesting thing about that is brokers now downgrading commodity prices. There, there is an element of brokers following, and I call it backcasting rather than forecasting, where uh, commodity 
price is so hard to predict that you'll find a lot of brokers, if they don't revisit their research for a, a month or two or three, whilst commodity prices move, they end up realizing they are looking ridiculous with their mm -hmm. current assumptions and they have to downgrade. And here you go, Morgan Stanley's not adding any value. All it's doing is responding to something that's already happened. So you don't respond to a Morgan Stanley downgrade when in fact they're just out of date. So they're now getting up to date. Point there. Thank you, Leighton. Have a look at our fresh ideas today. Chris is not with us in this podcast, but he has put in CSL as the chart of the day. He covered it in his webinar last night. There is a link to that webinar recording in the bottom of the fresh ideas section. So if you missed out on that, and, sure that, and that's worth having a look. He covered 10 stocks. Yeah, he took the 10 most popular, most requested stocks from our subscribers. So sure to be some that you're interested in, no matter who you are. So yes, definitely check out the link to that in that section. Chris sees that CSL is trading at an attractive price, especially when you consider the flight to quality that we're seeing in the market at the moment. It's got a bit more detail in there and some charts. So check that out. I've got points bet in PVH as a fresh idea. They have been in the news lately a little bit. They raised $94 million from options trading giant SIG, which is now their largest shareholder with a 12.8% holding. SIG is headed by Jeff Yass, who is a billionaire who cut his teeth gambling on racetracks and poker and then rolled that straight into options trading and has become since then a billionaire. So he knows the industry well. He knows the balance of risk award and what it takes to be successful in gambling. PointsBet is being a horrible performer. It's 83% off its highs still, even though it is up 30% in the last week or so. As Marcus, you said the other day, a 30% jump after an 80% fall is not that much if you bought at the top, but it's still worth noting. The game there is the US gaming and getting a slice of that pie. Goldman Sachs projects that the market is going to grow by more than 40 times by 2033. So even a little slice of the pie in the US is going to be very profitable. There's some big competitors with some deep pockets, but it is a good time to have a billionaire backer that knows what he's doing. And it's a little bit of optimism for points bet, which there hasn't been any for quite a while. So something to look at at least. You have made an assumption there that billionaires by definition know what they're doing. Might not. <laughs> I don't think any of us have any ability to comment on that because we're not in the category, unfortunately. I would actually recommend reading his story. I was reading into him yesterday. I'd never heard of him before, but a really interesting guy. Not come from money or anything and just built his way out with his mates and sounds like he's had a bit of fun doing it. Tom, you've got an idea as well in West Farmers? Yeah, thank you, Ben. West Farmers, I was just looking at the chart. It does leave something to be desired, but RSI has just moved from oversold territory and printed a buy signal, which piqued my interest. Its position, though, as everyone's probably aware, as a retailer has weighed on performance given those obvious price pressures. One point to mention, Macquarie recently, they downgraded the stock on the back of those price pressures, but the target price still suggests a little bit of upside. That's even after accounting for a US recession and slowing domestic growth. Almost every broker sees upside in the share price. And while there may be more weakness to come, the main point, the main takeaway is that there's a high quality company trading at a large discount on offer then. Thank you, Thomas. And before I throw to Henry, I will also note that we've got a couple of portfolio changes in today. Uh, we cut our energy exposure back to market weight earlier in the week. And we did note at the time that if the oil price continues to trend downwards, we would pull it back further because we know things can move very sharply in that space. So we are taking another 1% off Woodside and Santos, bring us underweight oil will have about 2.5% left in total. That's a pretty sharp pivot point there. And the narrative has obviously changed to the focus on recessions and lack of growth. So uh, we'll watch that. And we've also cut our small 
small holding of Woodside out of the dividend portfolio. They don't have a dividend due for another couple of months. We'll assess it when it gets closer if we need to collect it, but the risk in holding at the moment is probably not suitable for the dividend portfolio considering the recent moves. Now that's done. Henry, what have you got for us? I guess following on from what we're talking about with commodity prices, looking at a great film of one of my favourites, Trading Places, where the Duke Brothers explains to Billy Ray Valentine about commodity prices and, of course, the stuff of the bacon and egg roll or those sorts of things. We are seeing the price of lumber falling. Uh, That has been a big inflationary impact in the US. We're also seeing wheat coming off as well and oil coming off and the Baltic Dry Index, which is a measurement of uh, the cost to ship stuff around the globe, has been falling as well. So there are some signs that maybe we are seeing a little bit of a peak in inflation. At least some of the pressures are being relieved. We've got Joe Biden heading to Saudi Arabia next month as well. Talk with MSB, Mohammed bin Salam, and hopefully they will get maybe an increase in supply there. So you're right to trim those oil positions, Ben, and something that I've been talking about in my stuff in terms of waking up one morning and finding the oil prices down 10% as it comes back towards 90 bucks is certainly a possibility. And we are seeing that in commodities generally. Generally, a lithium stock's getting absolutely whacked at the moment, especially the second liners, although we have had some better news today from Pilbara talking about their recent auction. Lithium is the one commodity, I guess, at the moment that stands out like Prince Charles's ears in terms of being so strong. It's up 430-odd percent in the last year on year. So it has been a massive performer. And so there is obviously risk to the downside, which the market has priced in to the extreme in some of the lithium stocks. So it's interesting to see Pilbara continuing to see strong demand and strong prices for lithium. It has rallied the stock slightly, but there is a lot going on in that sector at the moment. Leo Lithium, which was a demerged business from Firefinch in Africa, comes on trading in about one minute. They raised 100 million bucks odd at 70 cents, and it looks like they're going to come on at 50 odd cents. So not a particularly good start for life for Leo Lithium. Also, just a heads up, I'm going to do another Ask the Analyst next Wednesday night, 5.30. Same time, same bat channel, just a final one for the financial year. And if anyone's interested in that, they can register on the website as usual. Great stuff. Thank you, Henry. Marcus, what have you got for strategy? Thanks, Ben. Worth mentioning, just a couple of little observations on the West Farmers. West Farmers, 50% Bunnings, 30% Kmart, 10% Office Work. So uh, there's only 10%, which isn't retail in Australia, quite honestly. And so it's really a function of Bunnings. So I think probably why it's underperformed so badly is the housing market generally and consumer discretionary exposed to those two themes. So you really need those two to turn around. Interesting on the housing front, the lumber prices Henry was talking about, they over doubled from middle of last year to March this year. They're up about 225% and they've since fallen 64%. So it's right. There are elements of inflation which are coming back. I mean, if you've got anyone building a house next to you, you'll know they didn't want to forklift a load of timber onto the front of their nature strip and leave it there because it would go because lumber was in short supply. Anyway, that does seem to be easing up. That aside, in the strategy piece today, uh, nothing much has obviously changed overnight. The tone is still a bit flat in our market yesterday, very low volume. And we were up 34 at one point and ended down 15. So there's really no momentum behind our market at all at the moment. And the theme of the week is, as everyone's mentioned, resources are imploding. I've got a chart of the iron ore price 
which is now down 22% from the top in just a few days of the iron ore price and the sector. It's beginning to look like at one of those big pivot points or once a year or twice a year pivot points in the resources sector. We've just hit a top and obviously not helping the iron ore price, this Chinese initiative to set up a central iron ore buying body to control Australian iron ore prices. So uh, a sector coming off the top. I wrote, I think last week that there was a decision point I think there's still a, a likelihood of a continued downtrend from here. And the cascading number of strategists now predicting a recession and higher chance of recession obviously doesn't help. You'll also see as well the Aussie dollar, which is a commodity currency, continues to slide as the US dollar, which is a safe haven currency, continues to look more attractive as people start to worry about a recession. Now, on the recession front, Powell's testimony last night, I won't run through it all, but it is a uh, well worth having a read of the strategy section today if you've got time. But the interesting bit was the comment that uh, they are not trying to engineer a recession. It hadn't occurred to me that actually the Fed might try and cause a recession in order to get on the uh, get on the top of inflation. And they have said that inflation is their goal, uh, not protecting growth. And uh, as uh, Ben's mentioned this morning, I think he read some article recently, uh, which was saying that a recession is just a couple of quarters of negative growth. It's no biggie. Economies always recover from recession, but inflation can completely derail an economy long term, as we've seen occasionally, but we've seen in Japan cause their stock market to drop around 7 8% compound for 20 years after the peak in 1989. And you think about Zimbabwe and places like that. So inflation really can be a problem that gets ingrained, whereas recession is likely temporary. In other words, the Fed are committed to bringing down prices and will do so even if it risks an economic downturn. So maybe these growth concerns are, or the idea that the Fed are going to protect everybody from a recession is just misplaced. And that's sort of what the commentary last night said. Powell said a recession is certainly a possibility and events around the world in the last few months have made it more difficult to reduce inflation without causing a recession. And the Fed will be looking for compelling evidence of slowing prices before they ease up on rate increases. Notice they're not saying we are looking for compelling evidence of a slowing economy before we start easing up on interest rates. Prices are the focus and the invasion of Ukraine and China are putting continued upward pressure on inflation, they say, and they don't rule out a 100 basis point rate rise. So have a read of that. But the message is their focus is inflation, not growth. So a recession is a risk. All these strategists are now downgrading. The interesting part about it is that the 10-year bond yield actually fell a touch overnight, which does suggest the market is now getting more concerned about growth than it is about interest rates. And I've got a chart of 10-year bond yield showing you quite a marked peak in market interest rates at the moment. And that all feeds in, of course, to resources uh, sector, which we've talked about already, which is getting oversold. And the flip side of that, though, is if we're going to worry about growth and interest rates are going to come off, do we then start to look at interest rate sensitive sectors? I've put up a chart of the all tech sector. There is nothing there, either technically or fundamentally, that says there is a bottoming happening in the all tech sector yet. Yes, it is oversold. But even if the sector does level out, it's probably going to be because sellers are exhausted rather than buyers are getting interested. And most of the stocks anyway, I've got a stock box of zero. Most of the stocks still lack any sort of fundamental value. You've got a PE on zero, which is the biggest tech stock after SQ2, after pay or block, whatever you want to call it. But zero is on a 
PE still of 225. So it's still a concept stock, not a value buy. So nothing in that sector is looking cheap at the moment, except for the price compared to where it used to be. And that's no guide. Yeah, I think with tech as well, it's probably worth noting that assuming a soft landing is pretty much out of the equation, whether the Fed is successful or not, then we've got an issue of either inflation or really struggling growth, both of which are really nasty environments for tech stocks. So they're going to be facing a pretty strong uphill battle unless the Fed manages to manufacture a soft landing. And none of those factors are good for equities generally. So the conclusion I've got at the bottom of the strategy piece is cash is still king. That could change on a daily basis. We'll just keep waking up and making decisions. Now, whilst I'm here, just to say we have reintroduced the member panel. Uh, We're going to try and keep that going. I don't like the look of the buttons at all that we've got in there, but hopefully that'll improve user experience and we'll try and come up with something more attractive for you. But you will see at the top of the newsletter now, there is a series of buttons you can click on, which will take you to the individual sections. That hopefully will make it easier for everybody to get around the newsletter. And it certainly looks a lot better on the phone, I have to say. Very nice. Thank you, Marcus. And our question of the day today is, if you could work in any country, what would it be? Laden, I think you've got one. Yeah, this is assuming that saving tax will be something important for me, that I'll be making enough money to have to do it. But the Bahamas, the old zero tax setup. Very nice. I hear they have a good work from beach policy as well. <laughs> Marcus? Oh, that's a tough one. If I was a bachelor, it might be different, but I'm a family man. I think I can't beat Australia, quite honestly. I went back to the UK and Emma and I thought to ourselves, oh, we could, you know, it's quite you know, more better restaurants and more people and lots and lots of people we know and all this sort of thing. And then we realized it was 8.30 at night all day, <laughs> just drizzling and, and dark most of the time. And every bit of country marketing you see always has a photo with the good weather, not the bad weather. So I, d- I just don't think uh, Emma and I could handle getting into a more highly populated area with smaller houses. So Australia it is for us. Fair enough. Tom? Yeah, I'm sticking with the homeland. I don't see any reason to move. Fair enough. Best surf in the world. Oh, it's up there for sure. Actually, but the point at which you don't maybe don't realise having not having lived in somewhere like London is the surf here is accessible for a, a drive without a traffic jam to beaches that are clean rather than covered in oil or got pebbles. If you are a surfer, you're uniquely lucky in this country because to try and achieve, I was a windsurfer in the UK. It was a nightmare trying to get to the beach. The weather was always cold and you had to have um, diesel fuel in the back of your car in order to wipe all the oil off your boards. So that's the Solent for you. It's one of the busiest shipping channels there is. You are very lucky here as a surfer. There you have it. Henry? I can echo Marcus's uh, thoughts because I was a windsurfer as well and I used to be down at Hastings and Pevensey windsurfing most weekends. So yes, it wasn't just the oil you had to evolve. It was the other issues in the water that people had dropped there. So not much fun. My country of choice, and it was my country of choice 33 years ago when I came here and it still remains so. Australia is still one of the greatest countries in the world to live in. Uh, We have our problems, but it's pretty darn good, especially as Marcus rightly points out when you have the misery of the drizzle it's just the drizzle in England the grey skies and the drizzle but if I was pushed and couldn't live in Australia I think I would pick Italy is my second favourite or even Spain Italy or Spain but somewhere in Europe for sure fair enough and I would struggle to argue with most of those points on Australia but to mix it up I'll say one of the Nordics with a four day work week so I can go and play more golf Uh, Ben you already have a four day work week (laughs) I was waiting does that mean you're going to be working overtime with a four day work week <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to make any comments there right. and get myself in trouble. And that's about that. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah.